Welcome everybody to the Wright County GOP podcast. I am here today with Walter Hudson and Eric Lucero. Walter represents District 30A for the House and Eric represents District 30 for the Senate. Um, I gotta do my little disclaimer here. Anything we talk about uh, is obviously solely the views and opinions of me and my two guests and is not representative of the general or the executive board at large uh, for our VPOU. But with that being said, uh, before we get into you know the nitty gritty, uh, I wanted to ask Walter you about a post from last night. Somebody, you took somebody up on an offer. It, <laughs> you went to try to debate somebody and shockingly they possibly didn't show up. Yeah, so I, this is, where do I even begin with this? So I did what by conventional and probably any wisdom was a very bad idea and reacted to a completely anonymous troll on Twitter who challenged me to a debate um, and brought up like time and place, like seven o'clock on Thursday at Bright Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. Um, oh, it was Minneapolis. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I... Perhaps um, rushing to judgment was like, yeah, I'll be there, right? <laughs> and then once I put it out there, it was like, okay, well, I guess I actually have to show up. <laughs> yeah. Right? So I went down there and I walked in. And I had checked out the website ahead of time because I'm like, debate. I'm like, what kind, what kind of a bowling alley has a debate? That doesn't make any sense. Well, they do have a theater. Uh-huh. Um, and so I went out there and I checked with the staff. And I'm like, hey, you guys have any like open mic debate style thing going on? No, like they acted like they'd never even heard of it. Okay, so I'm like, all right, well, I might as well have a drink while I'm here. So I sat and I sipped on a beer for 30 minutes and took a picture of myself sitting there and posted it in response to this guy and said, well, thanks for nothing. And that was it. It was weird, too, like about not knowing Jesus or what was It was, it was, it was unworthy of response. Like, I have a very, I typically, um, or let's put it this way. I've developed a kind of an unwritten criteria of what to respond to and what not to respond to and who's worthy of engaging with and who's not worthy of engaging with. And this guy, I, I'm assuming it's a guy, um, most definitely by the criteria that I typically use was not worthy of engaging with. I think what took me aback was this was the challenge to a well-known particular time and place. Mm-hmm. Bryant Lake Bowl, 7 o'clock on Thursday. We're doing this. I'm like, all right, let's go, <laughs> you know. Um, and so, and, and also just the curiosity of, yeah. is there a, de- do they have open mic debates at Bryant Lake Bowl? Is that a thing? Like, I was kind of interested in finding out what it was all about. But it turns out it's nothing. doesn't exist. Just someone that talked tough behind the screen and shockingly couldn't back it up in person. There you go. Um, and Eric, because obviously uh, the only thing you do down at the Capitol is pack heat, right? <laughs> Are you packing heat? Because there is no sign on the front door that that's, says you can't. That's right, but there is a, uh, a nice decal on the front of this <laughs> laptop that is definitely a Second Amendment friendly household. Well, first I want to start out by, by thanking you for the invite and Allowing myself and Representative Hudson to join you. This is, uh, we live in interesting times in Minnesota and it's sad times. And unfortunately, the times are about to get worse for law-abiding 
Americans, Minnesotans who are simply trying to live their life. Uh, in terms of the Capitol, yes, I'm a definite uh, supporter of the Second Amendment. I am a permit to carry holder, and uh, they wanted to do what they could to try to shame me or whatever their thoughts were. But yeah, it's uh, um, the mean, Capitol is not a gun-free zone. How ridiculous to take one picture, like literally a millisecond, and then apply it to everything. I mean, we could probably take a picture of one of the Dems picking their nose, and then obviously, is that the only thing they do down there? Well, exactly. But Well, the reality is in the state of Minnesota, I know many people, uh, good people, they will use the term conceal and carry or concealed carry. We don't have that in Minnesota. In the state of Minnesota, we have a permit to carry, and there's absolutely zero requirement mm -hmm. to conceal it. Yeah. And so, it frequently, I'll walk around the hallways of the Capitol totally in the open. Depends on what I'm doing, where I'm going. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's not worth putting a jacket on. Sometimes it is, you know, whatever. But yeah. if it freaks out the, the leftist hardcore socialists at the Capitol, well, so be it. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Um, but are you, so you are not packing. Right now. Uh, at this particular moment, I am not. You it probably, is. You probably don't need to. I think we're safe. Huh? Yes, yes. We're still in uh, Wright County. Yes. Um, all right. So what I figured we would do is we would go through the main bills, or I would uh, bring them up, um, and then you guys could just talk about anything you want to anything you want to add to them or explain or. Uh, but yeah, basically the the idea of this episode is to get a good recap of what you all went through. So the first one I have is the Protect Reproductive Options Act. Either one of you, take it. <laughs> I would like to explain on that one. Well, I guess I'll just start off by saying many times when, the, I think they're calling it the PRO Act, uh, many times when this piece of legislation, now law, uh, is referenced, they, they talk about abortion. And the reality is it's not limited to abortion. It is reproductive care. So it's both men and women, and it's anything at all tangentially related to uh, reproduction, anything. Hmm. And so because there's a very vague definition, that's why it is very subjective as to what is the definition of reproductive care. And in most of their terms, this session with much of their legislation, they included the phrase limit, uh, not li including but not limited to something to that effect. And so, yeah, it's very broad and can be interpreted. So uh, that is one of the things that they passed early on in the session, one of their highlights. And yes, it is going to impact uh, parental authority. It's directly designed to infringe on parental authority. It's designed to target minors, those who are not adults, and uh, no consent is needed, no notification is needed, and it applies to both men and women, boys and girls. Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway from the abortion bill, other than the fact that it was their House File 1, their Senate File 1, their top legislative priority, like above all else, the economic pressures that people are feeling, um, you know, the, the rising crime, you know, it's, it's embarrassing. People are calling Minneapolis the Detroit on the Mississippi and um, the Midwest Portland and all of that. Uh, in spite of all of that, their top priority was let's figure out a way to pour limitless gallons of infant blood into a black hole of indifference. Um, and what this, this, this bill stands in contrast, this law now stands in such philosophical contrast to their public policy approach to literally every other issue. So they're going to micromanage the nuances of how every employer manages their paid leave 
but we have this wild, wild west space of complete and total anarchy uh, around anything having to do with unborn life um, and anything that we can shove into the category of reproductive health. So we're just, we see no evil, we hear no evil, we're not going to keep track of the numbers, we're just going to pretend that that entire area of existence from conception until birth and perhaps a few minutes after um, just doesn't even exist and that there's no moral questions or governmental concerns that need to be raised in that entire space. And the, the PRO Act is a heinous piece of legislation. Again, now law. But it doesn't end there. After that was signed into law, they continued marching forward with repealing decades of law that had been passed over that period of time, bipartisan Democrats and, and Republicans voting for it, some of the legislation, such as the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, which I helped to uh, co-author, signed into law by then-Democrat Governor Dayton, that was repealed. So there are many other laws subsequent to the PRO Act being signed in that repeal what Rep. Hudson just referenced is uh, the tracking, the numbers, there's all kinds of other statutes that were related to, regulations, all that was repealed. Um, this... So is this, uh, we'll stick on that topic, but it's farther down my, uh, down my list. Um, the, where did it go? I just had it. Um, protecting Abortion Patient Trans Refugee and Conversion Therapy Act. Yeah. That is a separate act. There, that is a separate bill. Those were multiple bills, at least in the House. I don't know how it came down in the Senate. But, I mean, everything ends up in an omnibus at the yeah, end, right? Sure, sure. Um, but each of those bills were separate bills in the House. So banning conversion therapy, that's something that they, so-called conversion therapy, mm-hmm. is something um, that they did early on in the session. The, the repeals uh, of all of the existing abortion guardrails and protections for uh, both the unborn and mothers was removed. Yeah, the, the trans refugee thing. Now, you, we can't say enough. So... <laughs> Just prior, I think the way this went down was um, the tragedy in Nashville where a trans-identifying individual murdered six people, including three nine-year-old children, um, targeting her former private Christian school. I think that happened on a Monday. The, The week prior to that was the week that the trans refugee bill passed out of the house and it passed on a friday morning so we debated it late into the night thursday and finished debate at five o'clock on friday morning and then the following monday the tragedy in nashville happened earlier in that week um, they had passed an abortion refugee bill and both of those bills shared a particular constitutional aspect in common and that is a violation of the full faith and credit clause of the constitution so Part of the bargain of our federal union of several states is that all the states agree, hey, we're not going to interfere with um, the, the execution and enforcement of your laws with your citizens. We're going to engage in full faith and credit with each other. If somebody flees the state of Wisconsin mm-hmm. um, because there's, there's something here that isn't illegal that's legal there... Um, we are going to extradite them. We are not going to protect them. This is, we're not going to have a sanctuary in our state to shield people from your laws. That's full faith and credit. Both of these bills, the abortion refugee bill and the trans refugee bill, explicitly violate the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution. They, they are, in effect, I think quite ironically, 
um, efforts at nullification and efforts at a, a form of kind of light secession very similar to what you saw the Confederate states do mm-hmm. leading up to the Civil War, where they just decide, well, the law is different here than it is everywhere else. Um, and Democrats in Minnesota proudly champion that. Anything, anything else? I, I, it just, it's the, this topic of abortion and uh, other sexual related uh, areas like uh, transvestites and and right on down the list is just one that it's still to this day just having this conversation it's so sad that this was the highlight the one of the top priorities of of the democrat majority mm-hmm. and they're parading this around now after session i've seen multiple headlines multiple events press conferences they're parading this around putting the feather in their hat and lifting this up that this is what minnesota is all about and yet in the very next breath, I've seen also multiple times Governor Walsh say, we are a state that's dedicated to protecting our children or high quality children or raising a child or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, how is it that you, in one side of your mouth, promote legislation that murders children and at the same time, and then at the same time mutilates children? And we're talking about transvestite type uh, mutilation without parental authority or consent. Uh, and then in the next breath, say that Minnesota, that, that they are working to create a Minnesota that it's great to raise a child. It is just that they're absolute opposites of each other. What's so crazy is that it seems as though most of the world, especially the European countries that for one, for a long time, were even more progressive and farther to the left than us, are realizing this stuff has gone too far and they're pulling lots of it back yet why is that not happening here why why is why is nobody paying attention well other than our side but it seems like no like as a whole nobody's acknowledging this these very uber progressive countries that that america you know the left used to want to look up to i mean do you think it's just because that's inconvenient i'll submit something for consideration and that is hyper abortion. I'm just going to put it that way because it's up to the mil- no regulation up to the millisecond of birth. I-, I will submit that that is not a progressive cause. And the traditional progressive uh, socialist Europe, which, as you just referenced, Democrats used to, to look up to, mm-hmm. even those countries have regulations in some capacity. I think that demonstrates, and again, I'll submit for, for just people's consideration that even these progressive socialist countries in Europe have regulations on abortion. The fact that we don't, the Democrats here in Minnesota push that, that a hyper abortion is not a progressive value, but instead the agenda we saw here in Minnesota, it is a demonic satanic value that was promoted. Eric's going to go and get himself in trouble just like I have (laughs) recently for saying the same thing. Yeah, no, I mean, th- that's exactly right. Um, this There's a spiritual component to this. I think Steve Dace, who's a, a news commentator, has a conservative talk show out of Iowa. He has a theory that I think may have some merit to it regarding exactly what you're talking about, the disparity between where things are going here versus where they're going in progressive European countries. And the case that he makes is that the their march through the institutions across the pond, as it were, 
is already long complete. Like they're lost. They mm-hmm. they don't have any vestiges of what we consider to be American exceptionalism, um, this kind of classical liberal notion uh, of of a free society. That doesn't exist over there, and so there's nothing to be gained by pushing a radical, self-effacing um, agenda that literally uh, mutilates your own children. I mean, it's completely illogical, right? That's where I think the, the demonic um, characterization really does have a lot of merit because when it's, it's one thing, like just sin, like general sin, um, there's a degree to which it's understandable and relatable because we all have that impulse. Everyone has an impulse to enjoy, to indulge, um, to, to seek after short-term pleasures and what have you. But this stuff defies explanation. Like, what makes you want to cut yourself? What makes you want to deface and mutilate yourself? What makes you want to deny physical reality to the point where you eliminate sexual function, mm-hmm. right? Um, eliminate the capacity to reproduce. There's no logic behind any of that. And so that's why the, the demonic uh, explanation really does seem to carry some weight. But the, that mission is largely complete over in Europe. And so they're free now, now that they have control and they don't have any rebels to worry about, um, they can start to be a little bit more practical and think, well, you know, if we want to have a country, maybe we should keep our kids around, right? Um, and keep them functional. Whereas over here, we're very much still in the throes of a, uh, of a cultural war. I mean, we talk about it in terms of a culture war. Um, that's barely a metaphor, uh, and we're, we're it, and the stakes are still active, right? It's, we're still involved in, um, metaphorically speaking, live combat, where the winner, the victor, has not been decided, and they could still lose. And so the reason why they're putting the pedal to the metal, and I think this is particularly true of Minnesota Democrats, they're putting the pedal to the metal because, um, you know drink and be merry before tomorrow we all may die, right? Like they believe, in fact, I believe that Senator Lucero came up with the concept of, uh, or has been using the phrase kamikaze legislation. Very apt phrase that I've, mm-hmm. that I've adopted slash stolen um, because it's true. Like they, they're more concerned about pushing the agenda as far as they can while they can mm-hmm. without consideration of the electoral consequences because this is a war, and in war you sacrifice troops in order to win. That's their approach. Yeah, it's scary. Um, okay, let's take a breath from that really dark topic. Uh, <laughs> universal school meals. I know you. I know you have had a little bit to say about this, Walter, and kind of yeah. the, what kids in Edina and Minnetonka. Yeah, so I mean, the the I think this is an issue that it's it's very frustrating for people who like to approach public policy with any sort of common sense, um, as opposed to people who like to approach issues of public policy from a cynical political opportunism. Um, because in this case, it's the cynical political opportunism that won the day, mm-hmm. and a lot of people, even on our own side, even in our own. Um, Republican ecosphere um, have taken the position of this isn't a hill to die on, which is the rallying cry of surrender that you hear um, from folks all the time. And, you know, my counter to that was, well, nobody's dying on it, right? Like, this, I'm not committing 
uh, political kamikaze, legislative kamikaze, by pointing out the fact that that no no hungry kid is actually being fed by this, mm-hmm. right? We have programs in place, free and reduced lunch, that address this issue. And if your case is that there are people on the margins who are not being covered, that they're kind of fallen into this gap between being having food security and qualifying for free and reduced lunch, then okay, target a policy that adjusts the the math, um, the framework to feed those kids. But you don't feed literally everybody, including people in a diner in Minnetonka whose families are doing extraordinarily well and don't need to think twice about whether or not they're going to feed their kid lunch the next day. Why are we spending taxpayer dollars to feed those kids? Which is a very reasonable question, um, but all, all they had in response was just to shout at you and yell at you that you're, you're a, a monster who doesn't want to feed children and you're for starving kids and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's it, that's exactly right. There was no argument. It's just uh, calling names from their side. And what, this is just another example in their larger goal of socializing everything across Minnesota. And one of the, 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 the things that they have used successfully in this endeavor for many years now, if not decades, has been, quote unquote, the children. Mm-hmm. What they just put, do it for the children in front of everything that they've been pushing, everything, and that's how it's it's uh, made its its progress forward. So we, you know, we, we recall. I think it was in the first term that I had in the house. Uh, that might it's been a while now, nine years ago. But I think that's when we went from half day kindergarten to all day kindergarten, or something to that effect. And so, so kindergarten was expanded, and then after kindergarten's expanded, they continue to do more things. And this with school, they're they're adding on to both ends of the day in terms of school. And then it expands out to uh, more on the weekends and it expands out to more, uh, what, what what are they calling it? Uh, the all-inclusive school or all-around school? What's the term there? Wraparound services. Wraparound services. And well, what is that? So they, they, they want healthcare up and down the spectrum. They want food up and down the spectrum. Everything that is beyond education, the core function, and one of the things that I can remember, so when I went, was going to business school, one of the principles that they tried to teach us was long is the, the, the examples of businesses throughout history who have strayed from their core mission. They tried to go outside of, of what their core function was and they fail. And so the core function of education is to teach our children the fundamental basics so that they can carry those life skills with them where they go into adulthood and on the journey of life, right? Mm-hmm. But that, so that's the core function. What they've done now is they've lost a focus. Democrats in Minnesota have lost focus of what the core function of schools are supposed to be, and they're dabbling in all these other activities, whether it be feeding them and just everything else. And what is sacrificing? What is being lost? Education, we see uh, across the board the continued reduction of of graduation rates, literacy rates, reading comprehension at grade level rates, just across the board. So all these other things of where we've strayed to, losing the core mission of where we what is supposed to be K through twelve education, and our children are suffering as a result. So yes, now we're feeding. Minnetonka and Edina children. But in addition to what I just mentioned here, straying from the core mission, 
also what it's doing is it's planting the seeds in the minds of, of Minnesotans that, uh, hey, you know what? The government's here to take care of you. And it's just one more notch in the belt of a role or a function that government is now going to assume that should be the role of parents. Obama's slide, was it in 08, The Life of Julia? Yeah. Where there was no parents in the whole... <laughs> there was no parent in the entire life of Julia. It was just a government helping her along the way. Yeah, I mean, we, we laugh, but that quite literally is their vision for society. So, And, and that was dominant here uh, in the legislative session this year in Minnesota, 2023, as... As, as Eric was talking, um, my mind went to kind of like the through line of all this legislation and what it is that they're trying to achieve. And he's absolutely right. It is training you to expect to have your daily bread provided for you, not by God, not through your own effort, not through the fruit of your labor, but by the state and that you're going to line up and say, please, sir, may I have another? Um and there is no functional limitation to this. And it was one of the things that I argued on the House floor of, you know, this, this argument that you're making for feeding every child could be applied to literally every provision imaginable. I mean, what's next? We're going to clothe every kid? And there was laughter. and big, But it's like, that, don't give them ideas, my colleagues were telling me, because they, yes, they will eventually get to that. We hear them talk all the time about um, we need housing as a public good. Um, healthcare is a public good. Healthcare is a right. There's literally no aspect of your life that they don't want to, quote, pay for. And, of course, they don't have any money onto themselves. They have to take it from somewhere else in order to pay for things. Uh, but through the paying, control. And that is the ultimate thing. Is, is what, what fuels all of this philosophically is the desire to impose equity upon the masses. Equal outcomes. Um, and so who cares if they're completing the, the educational mission of actually teaching kids how to read and write and do arithmetic and be productive citizens in society? We've got too much of that as it is. We got too much achievement. And you know how we know that? Well, because there's a gap and we need to close that gap. And the, the focus is only on closing the gap. It doesn't matter whether we bring people up or we push people down. And it's much easier to push people down. And that's the direction that they're going. Is they're, but By taking from people who achieve to redistribute to people who are not, they are leveling the playing field and then sitting back, uh, you know, like Thanos, job well done. You know, and, and basking in what they believe is going to be a, a grateful universe. Yeah. Uh, let's stay on the money topic of one-time rebates. Are these, these are the Walls checks, correct? Like a whopping... I don't know if he's going to want to take credit for this. <laughs> <laughs> the whopping like $364? No, it's or... $260. $260. Oh. But what I'm not familiar... Uh, I've heard conflicting information that it is not actually a check that's being sent to taxpayers. I could be wrong on that. Again, I've heard of conflicting information. Or is it a deduction on 2020? Three taxes that we file in 2024. Uh, I, again, I, I don't. Have you heard? I, I don't know what what it is. So it's, but it's what I do know is it's 260 dollars per filer, up to. Well, I think there's some for children. I think it's up to 1300 dollars for a family, something to that effect. And then, uh, so that is that is what it is. But here's the the underlying principle, though. 
is that the tax over collection, the budget surplus that the state of Minnesota had was the compilation of multiple sources. It Some of it was, uh, we have multiple revenue sources, streams that, that, that create the, the, the general fund within state government. And so the reality is not everybody paid it in. And so one of the things that I think both of us have been advocating for, not just return the money, but return the money to those who overpaid. Because if you just return the money, like what we're seeing here, regardless of the form of how it's being returned, if you take the total dollar amount divided by X number of people and that's who gets it, well, that's it wasn't paid in equally in that capacity. Yeah. And so therefore it doesn't... So, by returning it in such a fashion, it is a form of redistributing wealth. And that's the reason why I simply have been opposing these rebate checks or whatever they, they've been called, because it's it needs to go back to those who overpaid uh, to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and they've been very explicit about it. like they're not hiding the fact that their desire is to redistribute um, this money specifically to people who did not pay it in. And that's their and and that's not just a one time thing, right? Like that's their whole operation moving forward. So all this spending, they spent the entire seventeen point five billion dollars surplus. They raised taxes by ten billion dollars. It's still not enough to cover all the stuff that they've got planned and that's moving forward. They created an entire new state government, the Department of Children, Youth, and Families. Um, that's gonna you know because we need to have government bureaucrats controlling all of that. Um, all of this is going to be a giant money laundering mechanism for taking money from people who have produced it to redistribute to people who have not. That is the purpose of it. That's why it exists. Uh, and so it's what I've been saying is that it, it this session, one of the best ways to summarize it is that they took efforts to punish productivity and virtue and to re reward the lack of such. Um, and thus to, to kind of disincentivize being productive, to disincentivize being, being virtuous, because what's the point? And you see it anecdotally in um, stories of people who work for school districts deciding that they're not going to take a summer job even though it's being offered to them because, well, I can just file for unemployment now. Um, or I have one of the guys that uh, works uh, for my company is a, a disabled um, former peace officer who has now has to have some of his disability payments clawed back by para as a result of one of the bills that they passed this year um, because he, he makes too much money and he, he works too much. And so what's his solution to that? Well, I'll work less. So now we as a company get to benefit less from what he has to offer um, and he is contributing less to society in the form of labor, right? And, and the reason why that's important is because all of the, all of the stuff that they're paying for, all this revenue, comes from income taxes and sales taxes. So if people aren't working, if people aren't producing, then they're not generating that revenue. And so it's it's the equivalent of, you know, I've got a garden hose um, screwed in outside my house. It's the equivalent of opening up the, the trigger on your hose and tightening off the um, faucet at the house. It's like, yeah, you might get a nice fun blast for about a few seconds and then you're going to have nothing. And that's the way it's going to be fiscally with the state of Minnesota probably in about two years. We are setting ourselves up for, for definitely some economic and other types of hardship. You know, one of the things that also I've been thinking about, not just this session, but in the last several years is, you know, as we, we were referencing uh, socialist uh, Europe uh, a couple of minutes ago. And one of the things that, 
you know, these other countries in their modern day, there are many things that, that we don't like about them. Uh, even China, right? Obviously, it would be another one I'm, I'm going to just use in this example I'm about to give. But one of the things that, that I do appreciate about these other governing uh, or governments, I should say, would be at least some semblance of the objective to, to create stability. And so what I mean by that is when you look at these European countries or, or even the British Parliament, right? I mean, they've been there. So we as a country, United States, we're, we've been around for, what, 250 years-ish. And you look at China, they've been around for thousands of years. Now, obviously, there are, there are, are, are instability, you know, obviously. But for the most part, you know, you look at Euro, uh, European countries and, and Britain, uh, British, they've been around for also, you know, hundreds or thousands of years and uh, in some form. And so... When we come to the state of Minnesota here now, it is not going to create any form of stability when you have this pendulum whipping all the way as far radical as you could, can go on one side. Then to have to even bring in the pendulum to the middle or let's say the next election, uh, there, you know, the majorities change, etc. Bringing the pendulum back uh, even past the middle. I'm not even going to say all the way to the extreme other side, but to, when it swings in such a, a, a manner... It can't allow for a business climate to foster. It can't allow for families and their children to make long-term, 5, 10, 20, 30-year decisions and planning. There's all kinds of things that this, this policy, and whether it be non-fiscal and fiscal policy, of these extreme swings every two years, it doesn't allow for stability and it doesn't foster long-term residency in Minnesota or businesses to either start, establish, or grow. And that's the other thing that's, it's an unwritten consequence that's going to happen from this because there are businesses, when they see these policies that have been passed that are going to drive up cost, this instability that the this radical Democrats have created is just, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's bad things are coming. And it's not an accident. I mean, th this is part of their operating philosophy. Um, future orientation, which is the, the character trait that saves, that plans, that, has, that builds a, a strategy for the future. Future orientation is something that they explicitly oppose. It was among the list of things categorized as whiteness at the Smithsonian um, Museum of African American History Back in, I think it was 2013 or something like that, they had this display of, um, you know, what we're combating when we push back against whiteness and white supremacy. On the list was future orientation. So that they don't want you to be taking responsibility for your own well-being um, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, looking forward to your own retirement, feeding your own family. What they want is for you to give up. What they want is for the life of Julia, um, for, for you to look to the state to provide you with your daily bread um, and to <laughs> be happy and own nothing, as Klaus Schwab says. That's their aim. Yeah. A great reset. <laughs> yeah. Um, gas tax and delivery fee will keep with the productive uh, or the non -productive A multi billion dollar budget surplus wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. So they had to raise taxes and fees, and those are just two of the the many, as uh, Rep Hudson said, ten billion plus. Mm -hmm. 
And is there anything more regressive than a gas tax? Is there anything more regressive than a fee on deliveries? I mean, this is they're constantly throw on this rhetoric of eating the rich and we need to make the corporations pay their fair share and millionaires and billionaires and blah, blah, blah. But who did they raise taxes on? You and me. They raise taxes on the middle class. They raise taxes on people who get things delivered to their house, which is literally everybody, and who drive a car. Or even if you don't drive a car, you're getting transported somehow. Even if you take an Uber every day, the gas goes up for the Uber driver. That means the Uber price is going to go up for you. right? Same thing with public tra- transportation. That's going to pass through in the form of taxes. Um, to to your bottom line as well. So the, just the complete lack of um, consistency with their message, not that I believe we ought to be eating the rich, but clearly the, I think the good takeaway from that, the fact that they were so regressive in their taxation scheme this session, is that the the whole notion of eating the rich is premised on a lie and that, that is, the lie is that there's enough rich to eat. There's not. That's not where the money is. The real money for public use is amongst the middle class, just due to sheer numbers of people. Um, And so in order to do all these wonderful sounding things and enact all these wonderful sounding programs, you are going to have to pay for it in workaday, middle class, blue collar, raising a young family, Minnesota. There aren't enough billionaires to to pick up the bill for you. Um, Let's go with maybe the most insane carbon free electricity by 2040 how how is that even possible like what what is the what do they think what is their goal or i mean we know what their goal is but i mean how so so this is this is something that's been it's been ongoing for a long time and on the left in this country um and what we know at this point is that it's completely insincere right so do, they, do the Democrats actually believe that by 2040 we're going to have no coal, no natural gas, that we're going to power everything with wind and solar? No, not a single one of them is stupid enough to believe that because you'd have to be a complete nutter moron to think that that's possible. But what they will be able to do is claim that they've achieved quote-unquote net zero by conjuring all these so-called carbon offsets, which is basically just a giant money laundering scheme. Um, to take to charge people for the privilege of flipping on their light or putting gas in their car and then taking that money and redistributing it to a just cause that is supposedly somehow countering and offsetting the evil carbon use. Um, and so this, this is they've conjured this way of uh, through various mechanisms being able to launder money misappropriated from the public, whether it's through um, taxes, fees, carbon offsets, uh, or just the increased price of of goods and services and energy, and take that money and channel it to their political friends to empower um, and expand their fiefdom. Um, And it is as insidious as it sounds. So I'm old enough to remember when I was in school, when it comes to evolution, that it used to be called the theory of evolution. I'm sure all three of us actually are probably old enough to remember that. And when I look, look around today, I do not see it referred to as the theory of evolution anymore. It is now taught as fact. And any uh, alternatives to evolution are dismissed and uh, mocked. Same thing has happened now to this human-caused global climate change. 
I'm also, all three of us are likely also old enough to remember when it used to be taught as the theory of human clim climate change or global climate change or global warming or, uh, I, you know, I remember the, uh, the vaguely pre-90s when it was still global cooling. It was uh, when I was in middle school, they started referring to it as global warming. So this would have been late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. And so now it's just all-encompassing global climate change. But the the what they're doing is it's this particular question, this topic of carbon-free by 2040 is its origination is on the premise that human activity is changing the Earth's climate. So one of the things we, we as we've already been discussing here in this conversation, the the radical progressive left in all their forms, not just America, radical progressive leftism. It has the objective of growing government, controlling people's lives, and whatever mechanisms might allow for that is what they support. So what they've harnessed onto now in these last several decades is this premise that human activity is causing the climate to change. And therefore, that becomes an excuse, assuming that's uh, it, the reason it's promoted now as fact, is that then becomes the excuse the acceptable reason why we can infringe on liberty up and down. And also, it gives them the excuse to increase taxes and regulation. And so that's the fundamental premise that it, it's on. Then secondary from that is because, according to them, human activity is causing the climate to change, and because it is specifically the uh, emitting carbon into the atmosphere, due to fossil fuels that is causing the climate to change. We can therefore justify infinite number of tax dollars, infinite number of regulations, and whatever type of using the tax code to socially engineer people's behavior away from carbon-based emissions to solar and wind is justifiable. And so that's why they passed it. It's to make themselves feel better. Uh, in addition to growing government and, and having control of people's lives so that they can put their head on their pillow at night thinking that they have some warm fuzzies, that they're doing something to save the planet. But the whole thing is a farce. The whole thing is a farce. And that's uh, it's so frustrating that billions, if not trillions, are going to be spent on this fake idea. Yeah, I think it, it's... I, I love listening to Sarah Lucero talk because um, my mind gets racing and goes in a million different directions. But I think back to like the, the 20th century and how much changed with like World War II and dropping the atom bomb um, and the advent of the United Nations and this effort to um, declare peace and security on the earth, right? So they, they, they decided or it was decided uh, internationally that the worst thing that could possibly ever happen is another world war and we need to do anything we can to stop that from happening. Now, the question I think that we ought to ask ourselves is, did, did we reverse human nature or somehow dramatically improve human nature over the course of the 20th century and now into the beginning of the 21st in such a way that human beings no longer try to dominate each other, 
no longer try to conquer one another. No longer try to seize that which doesn't belong to them and seize territory and seize control and lord themselves over. Did we really change our human nature? And is that why we, why we have enjoyed um, largely what we consider to be peace? Or did the people who seek power and control change their approach, their game plan, and go from 1984 to Brave New World? Because that's why I see a lot of this stuff is that they, they figured out a way with the narrative of anthropogenic climate change and global warming, whatever you want to call it. They figured out a way to get the peasantry to voluntarily opt into their own subjugation. Um, we, we constantly hear, again, going back to you know the, the consultant class and the people who advise us of how we're all too harsh as Republicans, um, we constantly hear like the number one issue of independence is climate change. And the number one issue of young people is climate change. We got to take it seriously. We got to start talking about it like we care about it. And the reason why I don't go along with that and why I imagine Eric doesn't go along with that um, is, well, first of all, I'm not going to lie for the sake of politics, right? Like it's not true. So I'm not going to affirm a lie. But then also because you, you recognize that the, the premise that he's talking about, that once you once you concede that premise that uh, because of climate change is a justification to do things that without it you would never even dare consider because they would be patently tyrannical, um, inappropriate, stealing, theft, uh, tyranny, subjugation. You would never be able to get away with it if you didn't have this overriding existential threat that you've conjured. Um, then... You, you, once you've conceded that, you've conceded everything. I mean, you might as well just surrender the, the war because they're always going to be able to cite it. And it's so ridiculous the granular extent to which they apply this. Like, even on the scale of Minnesota, before we even get to that, just think about, like, St. Paul. So St. Paul, I believe, has something similar to this on, a, like, a municipal level of they're going to be net neutral, carbon neutral by whenever. Let's say they do it. Then what? Is the temperature going to go down? Is the climate around St. Paul, is, gonna, is like a shield going to ascend around St. Paul and within there we're going to have climate nirvana um, because they reach net zero? And similarly with Minnesota, one state out of the 50, um, we somehow actually achieve zero carbon emissions, which would actually require us to all be dead, right? Because every time we exhale, we're exhaling carbon. But let's just say somehow we're able to do it. Is the temperature going to go down because that happened? Are we going to outdo China? If through, through shutting off everything and going back to the dark ages, are we going to compensate for the amount of carbon that's being belched out by the Chinese? Of course not. It's utterly and completely absurd. So it's, it's not a proposition that's offered in good faith. It's a proposition that's offered as a moral cudgel to berate people into surrendering their sovereignty and their autonomy and their liberty. What that made me think of was writing socialist um, in socialist societies, they claim crime disappears, but that's because they just, they don't prosecute crime anymore, right? Crime is out of this world. Right, right, right. But if, if you're not prosecuting anything, you can say, look, there's no crime. Right. Exactly. And with these things, uh, you know, never mind the fact that every, or what is it, like two out of three solar panels are made in China. They're supposed to last 10 years. They last three. They leak stuff into the 
into the wonderful, glorious farms out here that are using them. The Tesla battery weighs 2,000 pounds. How in the world could you ever recycle that thing uh, reasonably? And But as long as you can say, well, there's no tailpipe on the Tesla, hmm. so there's no carbon. There, you know, the, the solar panel isn't puffing black smoke. That's just what that made me think of. The, the same type of thought process of we will just claim that this is happening and we're achieving our goals when on the other side of the world, a third world country is being destroyed because it's mining lithium with seven-year-old kids yeah. who are yeah. dying in the mines and getting buried. You know, another aspect to think about, and it's one that I uh, I thought about. So I was on the energy committee in the Senate, not was, am. And uh, one of the things that, at, it was near the end of session. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, not near, it would have been near the end of committee deadlines that they held a, I think it was an informational hearing on, on several different topics. And one of the things that we also need to take into consideration is to the degree that Democrats are specifically pushing wind and solar technology, it comes at the cost of all the other forms of energy production that probably hasn't, haven't even been thought of right now, let alone are in their infancy being developed. And I, I, I highly suspect that there is technology that we, don't even, we don't even, aren't even aware of right now. Five years from now is going to come as an explosion on the scene and it's going to be so incredibly efficient. And what's going to happen is it'll probably surpass this wind and solar thing that is what the conversations have been this last five to, to 15 years. And all the subsidies, all the tinkering with the tax code, all of the grants, all the subsidizing, all of the everything that they that government has been pushing on this one technology solution, it ignores the stuff that does exist right now that isn't being spoken of, and it ignores the stuff that's coming that hasn't been invented yet. And so think of 30 years from now. And so this informational hearing that was in the Energy Committee, it had these people come in and just talk about these things that I'd never heard of before. They're not part of the common vernacular. And it, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff out there. And so that's another aspect that we need to consider as, as the force of government by a 34 to 33 vote is throwing all of this effort behind this one or two types of technology, wind and solar. And it's it's really minimizing and stunting the, the potential innovation of other technologies. Another, re- another reason. Shrugged. I was just thinking of that. <laughs> Uh, another reason why you know it's completely disingenuous is because they reject hydroelectric and they reject nuclear. Okay, um, those are clean. Those are carbon free. All right, not even not even neutral. Free. Okay. Um, this is not about energy. This is not about carbon emissions. This is about power. You bring up Atlas Shrugged, and that's where my mind went to as I'm as I'm listening to Eric talk, um, because in that novel. You've got the the mystery, like the plot B, the B plot line of them trying to them discovering this engine that can milk energy out of the atmosphere and trying to crack the code of how it works. And this is going to be amazing. And Dagny Taggart thinks this is the solution to our problems because she's surrounded by this expansive government and cronyistic corporate uh, conspiracy to 
control everything and to punish people for being productive. And she thinks naively, well, if we can just come up with a technological solution that provides more energy than anybody could ever possibly need, then that'll solve the scarcity problem and solving the scarcity problem will make all the wolves, uh, their, their bellies will be full and they'll be satisfied and we'll all be fine and we, and we can um, go away. It doesn't work and Galt sees that. He sees this is not going to work because fundamentally it's not about having full bellies. They say it is, but that's not what it's about. It, what it's about at root is a fundamental, it is a nihilism, a fundamental rejection of life as value. In essence, they want death. They want it. And, the, and that is, I think, literally true of um, not the rank and file, you know, environmentalist who donates to the Sierra Club and, you know, likes to plant a tree on Arbor Day. Um, but the intellectual leaders of this movement, I believe, are fundamentally, and we've seen examples of them explicitly stating, they hate human life. And this is about reducing human life. Another, th another thing they're coming after, and we're starting to see um, chatter about this in prominent places like Bill Gates, um, is agriculture. They're coming after the food. Now, again, you know, we get Galt's um, atmospheric energy machine. We get Tesla's wireless energy where we could just pull all we need out of the air with at no cost. Um, that's still not going to get us to net zero because we got cows, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and they flatulate and we got people and they breathe um, and, and they, they are already tilting after the agriculture and they're going to come after what you eat because it's not about the energy. It's not about the carbon. It's not about full bellies. It's about a demonic opposition to human beings as such and life as such. And I think another aspect that uh, Rep Hudson spoke about earlier, touched on, is that uh, with after World War II, we can never let this happen again. And the, the question was asked, has anything fundamentally changed about human nature? And it has not. And among the attributes in human nature... There are some personality types out there that desire to have an overwhelming desire to control other people. And I think the three of us sitting at this table and the many that are listening to this conversation, we don't understand that desire because we don't have it. I don't desire to control you or other people. Hey, I want to empower all three of us and, and the, the people listening. We want to empower you to make your own decisions in life. But that personality type does exist and it is out there and they've moved themselves into positions of influence throughout society, whether it be in government, whether it be uh, state agencies uh, as bureaucrats or commissioners, whether it be elected officials, whether it be teachers or, or those in, in classrooms at K-12 or, or college level. The point is this desire to control others is what they're seeking to achieve and they come up with all these other excuses to rationalize and mechanisms to use to achieve that controlling of other people and i think we saw that i know this is a tangent so i won't go into the great depth but i think we saw a degree of that when i i remember just looking in the eyes of some of the people during covid 
when I wouldn't have my mask on or I had the mask down below my nose and the just the looks on some of these people, they get this sick satisfaction out of controlling, you put that mask on. You put that mask over your nose. And I let it slide down a little bit. They walk by again. You, you know, it just, they, they have this, it, it just, it, it, it brought out this, this attitude in some of these people. But anyway, that's where we, we see this and it's coming in other aspects of life. Yeah, we kind of saw the Stanford prison study play out. If any of you are. You'll have to re- refresh yeah. my memory. Uh, the students at Stanford, a group were prisoners and a group were the guards. Mm. And they, like, these were people, these were kids that were friends. And after like, I believe it was after like three or four days, or maybe it went actually like a full school week, they had to shut it down because uh, the prisoner or the, the guards were literally abusing their fellow students. Who they were formed prisoners. a complex or something. Yeah. Yeah, superiority. I mean, that, yeah. It, yeah. It, it certainly felt like that for at least two years. Well, and it, and it isn't even, there's, so another analogy that people use is like crabs in a bucket, right? Uh, you put crabs in a bucket and some of them start to climb out. The other ones will grab them and pull them back down. Um, it isn't even always between classes of ruled and ruler. It's often, I think we see this a lot nowadays, it's the ruled. It's the, it's the proletariat. It's the masses that are policing each other. And showing kind of spite and nihilism and malice towards one another. We just saw this situation with the submersible that was lost, uh, mm-hmm. that they were going down to try to explore the area around the Titanic. There was five people inside. It turns out, sadly, they, um, they perished. There was an implosion. They died. You have people openly celebrating that, celebrating the fact that people died. Um, because who do they think they are going down to the bottom of the ocean doing something that only I read 250 other people have ever done? You know, it's it's this. My dad grew up in Detroit, poor. Um, he aspired to do better. He did do better. Hence, we're here in Minnesota. The whole time, he's he's got the other crabs pulling him back down in the bucket. His family, you know, d- d- diminishing him, de- de- uh, de- degrading him calling him names, telling him he's going to fail, and then as he succeeds, putting their hand out, pay me money, give me some of that, right? Um, that is a real cultural phenomenon. And it's and, and um, as Senator Lucero states, for those of us who don't think that way, for those of us who actually believe in the American spirit and that American exceptionalism and uh, a, a, a culture that celebrates virtue and looks at the guy driving by in the limo and says, wow, look at that, I want to do that someday, you know, what, good for him. Like, we don't understand where these people are coming from, but we damn well better understand that they're serious mm-hmm. and that they mean what they say and that they will pull us back down in that bucket um, and that they, there's nothing they hate more than the success of someone who isn't them. Yeah. And, it's, and it's not because they want the success for themselves. It's because they hate success as a concept. They don't like the idea of being successful. I'm going to combine two right now, but they have to do with school. Uh, And this made me laugh when I was reading this on WCCO's uh, politics portion of their website. Free tuition, because, you know, obviously, right, everything, if you say it's free, it's free. Right. Uh, And uh, school funding indexed to inflation. Take it away. 
Well, first, it's I think we probably share the, the philosophy that there is no budget in government. Zero government spending should be on auto anything, including index to inflation. All government spending should have to be revisited and reauthorized with an affirmative vote for any taxpayer dollars to be spent in any capacity. So, yes, you are correct. It's not just the school funding, but it's also the gas tax, right? There are other things they, they index to inflation. So automatic increases. And so, yes, we're absolutely opposed to that. In terms of your the, the free, uh, it's yeah, it's not free. They, they always say free, but no, it's just somebody else is paying for it. And whether it be the taxpayer-funded universal lunches or breakfast, it's actually, I think, breakfast and lunches that we were speaking about earlier, the universal now of college tuition up to family household incomes of, of I think it's 80000 uh, So uh, up to 80000 So anybody, if you're... single, right? Or I think it... Or is that double? No. Uh, I don't know the details offhand. I just... I, I In my mind's eye here, I can recall family household... Or I'm sorry, household income of 80000 I don't know if that's a family of four, a family of two, a one. I don't know. Um, but all these things indeed are taxpayer-funded. They are not free. Yeah, my understanding is it's eighty thousand. Period. It okay. doesn't none so of them. Either single parent or single to yeah. Okay. So again, going back to that disincentivizing productivity and virtue. I mean, think through this, right? So you've got two neighbors who live right next door to each other. One has a combined household income of eighty thousand and one. The other one has a combined household income of seventy nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine. The first gets to send their kids to college, quote, free, unquote. The second has to pay for it by themselves. Where's the logic in that? And when you, when you raise this question, of, because this is something they always talk about, and it's always their excuse for hiking up um, and expanding the welfare state, is they talk about the benefits cliff of how, oh, this is a major problem because, you know, I'm, I'm a mom of three kids, single mom living by herself, uh, has to hold back from um, embracing potential opportunities because if she makes too much money, she's going to lose her benefits and then she's going to be worse off. So we need to like create new tiers and what have you to kind of like um, transition people, uh, which, you know, there's some legitimacy to that idea, but the way that they utilize that benefits cliff concept is to always justify moving the cliff to move forward to cover more people. Um, and that's the same reaction that they have to our criticism of this free college thing of, well, you know, we'll come back later and knock it up to 90 and knock it up to 100. And eventually, of course, what they really want, and if you talk to them for long enough, they'll tell you, is to just pay for, have publicly funded post-secondary education for everyone and to control that space. That's absolutely their agenda. I'm going to combine two more uh Paid family and medical leave and earned safe and sick time. Um, yeah, so this is one size fits all employer mandate that covers literally every employer. So you could own a lemonade stand and have one employee and that one employee is going to be governed by this top-down bureaucracy of paid family medical leave and earned safe and sick time. Um, and if they're female, pregnancy, an additional pregnancy leave on top of that. They passed all of that this session. And, and it's, an, it's a long time, too, isn't oh it? Oh, yeah. Like, if you add it all up. Yeah. I mean, I believe, because there's nothing, in my understanding, of 
these pieces of legislation that prohibits them from being stacked, right? So you could theoretically, um, in a year that you're pregnant, take your maternity leave and then turn around and take your unpaid earn safe at sick time and then turn around and take your paid family medical leave of up to 20 hours, I mean, 20 weeks. And uh, who knows, you might be able to make it through the entire year without um, working once if you play your cards right. And uh, it's just completely untenable. You know, one, the, the example that I point to, because when you think about employers, we're not just talking about like Walmart and uh, Home Depot and, and uh, 3M and companies like that. We're talking about cities, school districts, counties. Um, my city of Albertville, every year, I was city council for seven years, and every year we would have an audit, and every year the auditor would tell us, um, you, one of our findings is that you lack segregation of financial responsibilities, or however they phrased it. And what they meant was, you don't have a lot of people working for you. And so, it, it, where ideally you might want to segregate this form of record keeping from this form of management in order to ensure that there's no funny business going on, you guys literally can't do that because you don't have enough people to segregate those responsibilities, is what they're saying. Um, what that means is our staff is extremely valuable. It's, we have to be able to trust them because they're taking, they have a lot on their plate. Our city administrator is also our city engineer, okay? Um, if he goes out for 20 weeks, the city's screwed. Our financial director knows where all the, the dots are crossed and the I's are dotted, knows where everything's at and how everything works. And you can pull the facts right off her head. And if she can't pull it off her head, she knows exactly what spreadsheet to look at in order to find it. If she goes out for 20 weeks, the city's screwed, right? And it's those types of, and even if we were to hire somebody who on paper is more qualified to do the job, they don't know where the bathrooms are. They don't know how the filing system works. They don't know who they're working with or the borders of the town. They're starting from scratch with zero institutional knowledge um, for whatever period of time they're having to cover for the person who actually knows their job. And so that type of operational impact multiplied by every single employee in every single organization all across the state is going to sow untold operational chaos uh, for the folks in Minnesota. Yeah, and I'll tell you, it's this is so it's just so disheartening to, just to think back about what happened and the com lack of conversations that took place, lack of interest on the other side. In fact, I think it was uh, Rep. Hunter's comments on a, on a joint panel we were at where they actually celebrated and were joyful at not having to engage us in debate uh, and conversation on these various topics. And so anyway, now you think forward, what's going to happen? I am reminded back when, again, uh, this second story I've told now from, from business school during this conversation. But uh, I had a class that was an entrepreneurial class. And in entrepreneurial class, as it is in any business, there is something called barriers to entry. And uh, those who are in business who, who understand, you know, or those uh, entrepreneurs who have thought about bringing a product or service to market to start a business, you, you have to survey the environment, the landscape. Who are my competition? What regulatory or other hurdles are there to getting into starting that business, right? <clears throat> and so barriers to entry can act as a uh, uh, prohibiting those from even starting a company or growing a company. And so what's going to happen now? And, and the story that, that I'm, I'm reminded back of in business school is, though you may have heard and likely uh, are familiar with Fastenal, the company. Oh, yeah. So yeah, so so one of the the former or one of the the starters of that, I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was 
four friends or business partners who started fast at all, something like that. Anyway, one of them came in. I mean, here's this billionaire, mm-hmm. right? He had, he, he's no longer with, with Fasten at the time he came in. The, the professor of the class was just friends with this guy and so invited him in uh, as he does. But here, I, I just remember sitting in that seat, just looking at that and here's this guy, he's probably in his 70s and, he, and here's this billionaire, first billionaire I've probably ever seen with my own eyes, right? Uh, and I'm just thinking, and I know if it were a Democrat looking at him, they'd be like, what can I do to rip your life down, right? But I was looking at him as... What can I do to make decisions to, you know, become something like you, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, he told the story of when they started Fastenal. Uh, I don't remember where the building was, <coughs> but he said it was a building that had a basement. So the main level uh, is where they have their customers come in. And what they would do is they buy these barrels. For those who may not be familiar with Fastenal, they have uh, nuts and bolts and parts and things like that. And so what he said is they, when they started this company, I think it was the 60s, they had these barrels that they would buy, so it would be a large barrel of bolts. And then they would individually pull them out and put them into individual packages, you know, quantity of 10, quantity of 20 or whatever. So they buy them in bulk, they go through the effort of individualizing the packaging and that's what they would sell. And so anyway, he was saying that they, they brought in these barrels and at one point there were so many barrels on this main level that in the basement, the floor was actually bowing because it was so much weight and they had to uh, put uh, foundation jacks in there to hold the floor up. But, but, but as he was telling us the story, he made another remark and he said, the things that we did back then to start this company would not be possible in modern day Minnesota. He said, we would not be able to start the company. So I have never forgotten those words. And this must have been roughly 2008 timeframe when I was in business school taking that, that class. And, and so that was 2008. So we're now in 2023. So we're, what, 15 years later. It, look at all the additional regulation that's come on board. How many companies, how many innovators, risk takers are there across Minnesota that will not start a business? Now, they will not be able to get that off the ground. They will not be able to bring a product or service to benefit Minnesotans, nor to grow their own families or individuals' wealth. And and part of this paid family sick leave, because it's just one employee. My whole point in telling the story is that this legislation is going to be an additional barrier to entry. And we're gonna, we, we won't see this. How do you take and compile statistics on something that never was? Right? You can't do that. Mm-hmm. We can only theorize on how many businesses never formed. But that's what's going to happen across Minnesota. Yeah, and, and again, I would, I would say that in my view, that's a feature, not a bug. That's intentional. They don't want you, you uppity folks, starting your own businesses, aspiring to better, moving on up to the east side. They don't want that future orientation amongst the populace because that fosters independence, it fosters hope, uh, it, 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 puts, it fosters having faith in family and community and God and church. And what they want is for you to have total devotion and faith in them, in the state, to get your daily ration, to get your daily bread. Um, and and so you know it's it's kind of like what we saw under COVID with the unilateral impositions of Governor Walls um, taking over the lives of six million people in Minnesota and telling us we can't open our businesses, can't send our kids to school, can't go to church. Um, but there were exceptions, right? Like Walmart was an exception, and 
Tim Wall's buddy who owns Minnesota's biggest candy store, largest candy store, that was an exception. Um, the, they know what they're doing. They want it all to be controlled by major, woke, ESG-influenced corporations because then they can control you. If, you. if you have no way of making a living other than to depend upon institutions that they own, either literally or through their governmental influence, then you got to listen to them. And, that, and we're already, this is not theoretical, we are already feeling that right now. How many conversations do you have with friends, family, and neighbors where you're talking about something like, I don't know, gender ideology? And in their, on their own property, standing at their own fence, they look over their shoulder because they're concerned about somebody hearing their opinion on that topic. Why? Because we are currently now, not at some point in the future, currently now are existing under um, a, 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 a pseudo-fascistic um, private-public partnership um, that utilizes economic pressure to compel us to surrender our values, to renounce our God, and to bow down to the idol, right? Um, this, is, this is real, and it, it is a through line through all of this, this legislation. And it's funny because, you know, I, I had to, as I'm sitting here talking, I'm like, what do we start off talking about? Paid family medical leave. But honest to God, it is all integrated because the, the, le the more barriers to entry means less opportunity to produce for yourself, which lines you up to being dependent upon them, which gives them control over every aspect of your life. It's all connected. Final two, I'm going to combine driver's licenses for all and voting rights, democracy for the people. I believe these are both driver's licenses for illegal immigrants and trying to restore voting rights to felons and stuff like that, correct? So, so another way that states have been violating the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution for quite some time, states and cities, is with this notion of being a sanctuary state for illegal immigration. Um, and Minnesota is now vying to top the list in terms of states that are tossing the doors open, saying, come here, we'll take care of you. Um, I mean, it's not just driver's licenses for illegal immigrants. It's also access to, to benefits. That was changed this session, where now you can get on um, what's called MFIP, which is our version of welfare here in the state of Minnesota. We're going to hand that out to uh, illegal immigrants now. Um, and, and so, you know, there you go. Your tax dollars go into people who aren't even supposed to be here. Um, and so, so there's there's that aspect of it, but and then there's the electoral aspect. Now, I think it's actually debatable whether or not because the the way the law is structured, the Technically, the database of voters gets checked to see whether or not the person qualifies and whether or not they're a citizen and they have to demonstrate their citizenship in order to make it onto the list. Um, but there is no, it does raise logical and rational concerns, the fact that we're giving driver's licenses to people and with the election bill um, automatically registering people to vote when they go to get their driver's license. Because even though you're telling me you have that check behind the scenes in order to make the process work, I just have to take that on faith. Like the driver's license looks exactly the same. Um, and whatever check is being done is being done by Steve Simon. All right. Uh, call me crazy. I don't really have full faith in that guy. 
um, to be the one who's checking this. And then I highly doubt that that once that initial um, check, quote unquote, has been done, that there's going to be any subsequent review or audit or going back to look. Um, so there probably are going to be a lot of anomalies on the voter rolls. And not only for that reason, but also because because we're automatically registering people, because we're pre-registering 16-year-olds. Mm -hmm. Okay, what happens to a pre-registered 16-year-old who um, gets into an accident and is deceased or who moves to another state to go to college um, or who joins the military and gets deployed, right? Yeah. Like, um, are, what, are, what are the, there are all these situations that could happen to where that registration is now a live round, metaphorically speaking, um, that, that shouldn't be deployed because the person who is attached to either no longer exists or lives in a different jurisdiction or is out of the state and not a voting uh, member anymore. Um, and so they know that there's going to be all of these registrations and ballots floating around out there to be collected and utilized both legitimately and illegitimately. And that's a reality that we're going to have to, as Republicans, uh, adjust to and not just complain about, but figure out a way how to win in spite of these many disadvantages and lack of integrity. You know, the, the larger uh, context, whether it be the driver's license for illegals, the health care uh, uh, funded by Minnesota taxpayers for illegals, uh, or any of these other benefits, is the following question that we all have to ask ourselves. Is there a degree of rights and privileges that citizenship has that non-citizenship does not get to enjoy? And the I believe the answer to that question is yes. And I think all of us probably share that, that, that answer. The other side doesn't believe that. They're trying to erase any difference that citizenship might have. And that you see that with driver's license, driver the driver's license itself is a gateway document for pretty much almost everything else in life, whether it be benefits, whether it be opening financial institution, bank accounts, whatever it is you're going to do. And what the reality is that there are people who long to come to the United States, immigrating to the United States, but that they don't enjoy a common border with the United States. And with my, my in-laws all being uh, non-native, mm -hmm. uh, they, they were not born in the United States, I have an appreciation, and they, they don't come from countries that share a border with the United States, I have an appreciation for the reality of why are we granting privilege to people because they so happen to, to come from a country that immediately shares a border with the United States. That frustrates me to no end. Mm -hmm. When they and anybody else who wants to come to the United States should have to follow the process and should not be granted the privileges that come along with citizenship. And that's what granting a driver's license to illegal foreign nationals or health care or schooling or lunches or whatever is happening in Minnesota. Uh, again, it's so incredibly frustrating on so many levels. Driver's licenses for all stood out as it was presented one of the most memorable moments I had from this session in terms of actually legislating, being on the House floor, engaging in debate. Because here you have a policy that is explicitly meant to provide a benefit to a constituency that is not citizenry of these United States and not legal residents of the state of Minnesota. And it's being openly 
advocated for. We had people congregated in the rotunda outside the House chamber who have no legal right to even physically be present in our state lobbying for political outcomes, lobbying for legislation, telling us what to do with our laws. Okay? Um, that sh you should be offended by that. <laughs> regardless of the ethnicities involved, regardless of the national origin. I don't care if they come from Mexico or if they come from, from uh, Sweden. Either way, yeah. pe people who are not citizens of this country having the audacity to lobby us about what our laws should look like. And by the way, and one of the provisions in their election omnibus that they passed towards the end of session um, was predicated on the idea of removing foreign influence from our elections. How about you remove the foreign influence from the rotunda? Yeah. Okay? How about you remove the foreign influence from our legislation? Um in fact, that very bill in the elections bill that was ostensibly to remove foreign influence, what it did is it said that if a corporation had more than a certain percentage of foreign ownership, that it was prohibited from making political contributions. Conveniently excluded both nonprofits and labor unions. Um, but that legislation was drafted by like a Swedish billionaire. Okay, somebody who's not a resident of this country, and so it's all—it's all a big lie. They don't care about foreign influence. They want the right foreign influence. They want foreign influence that's going to benefit them politically. Um, and when we debated that law or th this bill, driver's license for all, on the House floor, Aisha Gomez, who's the chair of the tax committee and was the chief author on this bill, if I recall, got up and said, because we—we we, one of the one of the many amendments that we proposed was there had been a previous version of this law in a past, or this bill in a past session where negotiation between the two parties had uh, inserted provisions to make the IDs for illegals visually distinct. So it would be oriented differently. It would have not for voting purposes printed right on the license. So it would be very clear if somebody's trying to go to a polling place and they hand this to a, a poll worker, this is not a valid form of ID or whatever the case may be. Aisha Gomez shamelessly and without hesitation, state, when asked by one of our members, why was it cool then and it's not cool now? Why were you willing to accept this compromise in a past session and you're not willing to accept it now? Her answer was, because that's not what the community, quote unquote, wants and has agreed to. And she meant the people out in the rotunda, the people who are not citizens of the United States. In other words, they're running the show. Like, there's no point in me having an election certificate and there's no point in anybody voting because the people who are making decisions about what the legislation is going to be are folks who don't even have a green card or citizenship papers. I mean, the audacity of it. I mean, think about it. what other state, on, what other nation on earth could you go there as an enclave of foreigners and walk into their seat of power and tell them how they're going to run their country? It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the status quo in Minnesota in 2023. This has been scary. This has been scary. Um... I talked about the gun measures with uh, Darren, Sheriff Derringer, just two days ago. If you guys want to go over that, we certainly can. Obviously, we're all gun lovers. Uh, um, or I could get into just some of the questions. 
get a little more get a little more lighthearted after this last uh, hour and twenty minutes that we've done. Up to you. Do you want to speak I, on the gun? I mean, we sheriff and I talked about it, but if you have anything universal backgrounds and red flags, just that they're not going to help. I. They're important conversations, but if you already spoke with Sheriff Derringer, we obviously oppose them. Uh, they are not going to lower crime rates, and it's not gonna to. It's only gonna go after already law-abiding citizens. That's exactly what he said. Um, okay, let's 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 get a little lighthearted here for the remaining couple minutes. And we'll we'll do this. Um, and. As I'm reading this and as I thought of this, I'm guessing maybe a name uh, you won't want to say it, especially if you want them to actually get some sense in the next section. But were there any Democrats that you could see visually or vocally that were like, this is not what I thought was going to happen? Um, We've gone too far. Maybe they didn't say it. And if... (laughs) Maybe they did. No, there, there was never any public r- acknowledgement of that. You would get private anecdotal acknowledgement of people indicating, you know, maybe half joking, maybe half serious, that things were outrageous or too far or what have you. But to my mind, that gets you zero credit. Mm-hmm. You, you need to vote against it. Don't tell me in the retiring room that you think it's nuts and then vote for it. I, that doesn't get you any yeah. credit for me. So, uh, same thing. The the, you know, one of the things that I, I've had to explain uh, several times uh, throughout my legislative uh, experience is the vast majority of Minnesotans are are of the opinion that an idea is plopped on a committee table or is is put onto the general register or the calendar for the day for the the full body House or Senate to, to debate. And the merits and demerits of, of legislation, unintended consequences, the pros and cons will be debated. People will make up their minds. They'll, they'll accept or reject amendments to try to improve legislation based on the merits, etc. And then the final product of, of all that conversation is what is, 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 is put forth and passed on to the governor. Well, that's not what happens. That's what people think. That's not what happens. The entire legislature, House and Senate, full body or committee is a charade. The outcome has been decided before a bill is even put on the agenda in committee or put on the calendar for the full house. The outcome, the votes are already counted. If it is not, if if a particular piece of legislation and or amendment by their own party doesn't have the votes, it won't be on the calendar or, or the agenda. That's how it happens. So just know if you see a bill in committee or on the floor, whatever the majority party is, it's going to pass. There are a very few exceptions that I've ever seen. In fact, I've only seen it once where the majority party brought a bill forward where the bill on the floor failed. And uh, I've seen a handful of amendments in committee. There are exceptions, but there are very few and there's extenuating circumstances in those cases. So the fact is, to your question, do we see any 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 Democrats that displayed anything of remorse. we've gone too far remorse? The fact is, no. The fact that it, they they did their bullying, they strong arm people into submission behind closed doors, out of our visible uh, ability to see what was happening or who said what, 
But the fact is they conformed behind closed doors. So once it comes to the floor, they were all ready to vote in favor of whatever bill was up. And so to answer your question directly would be no, I not, didn't see anybody that had remorse in the Senate anyway. Um, at the CD6 convention, I can't remember who it was, but somebody was speaking up there and they said that there was a very different culture between the House and the Senate. And he said it kind of jokingly, but that was one of the things that stuck with me and, I, and me being the psychology major in college, always wanted to ask that and now I have too. What, what did he mean by that? Well, Eric knows better because he's been in both, so he can tell you. So there, there is an aspect in, in any of us who, who are an employee understand the word corporate culture. And so we, those of us who've been with multiple employers, regardless of industry, regardless of the job, we understand there's a culture. And the culture is formed by uh, a commingling of the personality types that are there, uh, the managerial style, et cetera, et cetera. So when it, so we understand that. So I'm going to use that that we're all familiar with, uh, and go to now the, the cultures of of the House and the Senate. Historically speaking, you know our own system, our republic is the result of the legislature now having a lower body and an upper body, and we understand that the lower body is called the house the, the the house of the people, the people's house, mm-hmm. and it is is therefore it's supposed to be. The more, I'm just going to say the common folk, I guess is how I, the, the slang that's put forward. And so that's why you get people like, you, you get to wear jeans, you get to be less formal. Okay, okay. There's more, it, you know, it's more of an accepted practice that you're you're more a rabble rouser. You're, uh, you just do things that are more off the cuff. In the upper body, it's more, there's senatorial. There is just this expectation that you're more formal the etiquette is more there. Just think of it at a dining room table. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas the lower house, the, the House of Representatives would be, you can just do what you're going to. It's a free-for-all at the dinner table. But if you go to a high-end restaurant, the expectations are you you have the napkin folded, you you cut each individual piece, and eat, it just there's a, a different expectation. And so, yes, there is a difference in culture. And uh, between the two, I will absolutely say the house is is funner. For sure, <laughs> the house is funner. The, the just the uh, it, it's just the reality. But n- no, both bodies are very important. But yes, there is a different quote unquote corporate culture. Yeah, I'm I, sure t-shirt button down. There yeah, we go. <laughs> I, I from from what little experience I've had um, being in the house my first term, I would say I saw nothing to incentivize moving to the Senate. <laughs> you know, I mean, aside from only having to run once every six years, as opposed to once every two, um, but but even with that, I mean, you still you still have to fundraise the whole time. You still have to mm-hmm. do the parades and all the things the whole time. So, um, I, I think it was your your predecessor and mentor, um, Senator uh, Mary Kiffmeyer, um, who said it's at least twice the work because you have twice the geographical area. Um, and even, the Senate. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and so running, I've had people ask me, what should I run for or what should I aim for? And I, and I just always tell them, well, how hard do you want to work? Because you're going to have to work much harder to be a senator than you are to be a representative. And if it's a younger person, if it's a millennial. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've always want, so during session, work schedule, or, I mean, are you there like, seven to five like do you get there early morning and kind of like a 
It's very it's very um, seasonal, and what I mean by that is that the the legislative session is broken up into um, various phases. So in the beginning, there's a lot of it's heavy on committee meetings, and those meetings are scheduled on a regular basis, and so you know when your committee meetings are going to be, oh, and sure. your your staff can kind of pepper in meetings in between those, and your schedule is kind of built for you day to day, and some days may be lighter than others in terms of. Um, what you have to be physically there for. As it moves into uh, towards the end of session, you know, all these committee deadlines come and go and the committees are done with their work and it moves on to bills hitting the floor. Then your sessions start to get longer and your days become much more unpredictable, especially when you're in the minority because you have no idea what the majority is going to do next. They tell you about 24 hours in advance, 48 hours in advance, what bills are going to be on the floor um, conference committees are going on and provisions are like appearing out of nowhere in bills and being taken out. So the further you get in the session, the more unpredictable and um, the, the more endurance is required and flexibility to just be there when you need to be there and be there as long as you need to be there. Hence your speech as well into the morning. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, you've got, if you've got, I don't know, three dozen people signed up for what they call a third reading speech, which is like the last opportunity to debate a bill before they take a up or down vote. Um, and each one of them takes even just five minutes, which is very, that's, that's you're, you're going to be lucky if that's mm -hmm. all they do. But even if just each one of them takes only five minutes, I mean, that's several hours mm -hmm. you're talking about. And so, yeah, I mean, and that was part of our frustration in the minority in the House. I don't know how it played out in the Senate, but they would stack these schedules with bills a completely unrealistic uh, schedule of, of how many bills we were going to um, consider in one day. And it's like, you you should know that each bill is going to take at least three hours mm -hmm. between the amendments and the, and the third reading speeches and rules fights and things that pop up. And yet you're going to sit here and try to do four bills in one day? Are you kidding me? And, and then, of course, when those predictable um, complications would arise... They blame the minority and say, well, you guys are dragging your feet and, and wasting our time and needlessly talking, and that's why we can't get our work done. Yeah, the, the, there's not much more to add than that. Uh, it is unpredictable as the session progresses, and uh, it, it sometimes can be 7 a.m. to past 7 a.m. the next day, yeah. uh, depending on, on the timing session, the legislation, uh, et cetera. So it can be t more than 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that I've, I've often observed is for those of us that are, I don't know what you want to call, maybe 50 miles if you want to say that. Those of us who are uh, metro, uh, urban, or I'm sorry, uh, suburban and then exurban, which is what both of us are. We have a very different experience from those that are more than 50, 60 miles because... The, whereas we get to go home every day, potentially, you know, m most of the time it's, it's home every day. Those that are, they leave their house Sunday night, Monday morning. They're down here away from their family, having to eat out or eat, you know, box lunch, bag lunch. I mean, it's a very different experience and sacrifice they have to make versus those. I, I honestly, I probably, you know, would, would have to think really hard if I would, would be interested in, in being a legislator if I had to be gone literally from Sunday night and don't leave again my and to go back home till Friday morning. 
And so it is a very the sacrifice required for for rural Minnesota legislators is way different for those of us that are, are closer, for sure. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're and so for we're, them, we're how would you consider it? For them, I I don't consider it a seven to seven a.m. Right. to five p.m. thing. Right. For them, it's twenty four hours times five days a week. Because they're, you know, they're away from their family, away from their business, away from uh, their own bed and their own dining room table. What do your families, or specifically the wives, think of being uh, attached to you all in the thick of this battle? Are they ever like, oh man? Well, I'll tell you what. Or have, have any of them ever, you know, been hopefully not accosted physically, but ever, you know, ah, you're the the wife of. When it comes to a citizen legisl- legislature like we are, uh, but even even if it's not, even if it were, you know, Representative Emmer, for example, and, and others, uh, but I'll, I'll speak to just us, the entire family gets roped in. When a person raises their hand and volunteers to be a legislator, runs for office, it's not just that person. It is the entire family. And so I, I, I know both of us, They our spouses go th- have incredible sacrifice Mm -hmm. incredible patience allowing us to serve and incredible hard work in being that support role for us uh whether it be parades whether it be just helping us to wind down after after a particular tough day um just picking up the 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 all that's needed to run a household in our absence everything that's needed uh children etc so we are so incredibly grateful and thankful for that in terms of, uh, you know, I don't think, I'm trying to think back in terms of the nine years I've been in office. Uh, I can't think of anything like that. Uh, you know, the, the greatest yes, yeah. that might come to something like that would just be, uh, you know, our spouses. This is, a, there are, uh, you know, communications that come in our direction, whether it be social media, emails, phone calls. You know, every so often I'll, I'll be on the phone uh, talking to some person who's, uh, it, it's it's not a fun conversation. It's, you know, maybe it's abortion, whatever the topic might be. And, you know, my spouse might be hearing my side of the conversation from the distance if it happens to be uh, on a cell phone, for example. And emotions can run high. And, you know, I, there's been conversations when I can see that my own wife is is getting emotionally drained, you know, based on some of these tough topics. And again, there's... So while there hasn't been physical altercations like you you might have asked in the question the emotional investment that our spouses give it, it, to support us is is very real yeah i would one of the things that surprised me um about this whole experience was the the extent to which i felt and i think i've heard other legislators um uh, references as well uh a hedge of protection like a godly divine hedge of protection because these stresses are real but they could be so much worse (laughs) like the attacks could be so much worse and i kind of expected them to be worse like every time you know i would go into to the legislature or go up to my office i would half expect to find um you know a, a picture i have hanging outside my office slashed or um some some other form of vandalism or a a um, group of 50, uh, you know, trans um, protesters or something ready to throw red paint on me and call mm-hmm. me a murderer or something, you know. Um, but none of that ever happened. And I 
I don't just account that or ascribe that to you know being lucky or um, people not being inclined because people most certainly are inclined to act out. We see it all the time naturally. Um, I really do feel as though I feel kind of similar, um, not making direct comparisons or anything. But, you know, we see examples, you know, whether you're talking about Daniel in the lion's den or uh, the one I like to point to is Moses and Aaron going in to see Pharaoh. Okay, so you've got two guys from the slave class walking into the audience chamber of someone who regards themselves as God of the universe and tell him what to do with his toys. Okay, and not only... Um, do does do they actually have an interaction and exchange back and forth and and compare powers? Um, but they get to leave, like they aren't immediately seized, thrown into jail, killed on the spot, which is logically, rationally, what you would expect in that situation. And that's because they were protected, right? Like that. That to me is even more impressive and more. Um, more credible of a miracle um, or, or a miracle that has more credibility than something as dramatic as parting the Red Sea or the plagues because um, holding back the the uh, the evil of man is more impressive than holding back waters you know so I, I very much appreciate what my family um, puts up with at the same time you know they they get a kick out of it my, you know, and, and they also get a kick out of the um, the 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 way other people look at me, both good and bad, mostly good. Mm-hmm. So we'll be somewhere, and somebody will come up to me and and start thanking me for this, that, and the other thing, and turn to them and tell them, "Oh, it's got these this these qualities, and such a wonderful person." And then they walk away, and they're like, "Who are they talking about?" <laughs> like, like, this is not the person. We know. You know, so it's it's humbling to have people who know you to check you. So. Yeah. Um, if you had a reasonable liberal from the '80s and '90s, we'll just say back when you know before it became so tribal like it is, how would you explain if they were sitting in here? Uh, and they weren't about to just get up and run away if they, you started saying something that they didn't like. How would you explain that us in this room, by the way, black father, I believe, yeah. Hispanic, white as white can be. Look like I'm about to steal your catalytic converter. <laughs> I realize that. Uh, that we are not every ism and ist that is leveled at us. How, if you had a reasonable liberal from the 80s and 90s, how would you tell them, explain to them? Well, I, and okay, so hy- hypothetically, we're doing a little time travel here, right? So mm. we're talking about a reasonable liberal from the 80s and 90s. I don't even think we would have to explain it to them. No. Because you go back that far and these concepts just weren't part of the vernacular. Mm-hmm. They weren't, we, we weren't, I mean, yes, was there, did people accuse Reagan of being racist or whatever? Yeah, but they weren't accusing their next door neighbor of it. They weren't accusing their cousin of it. Right, um, it it's it has become so pervasive, and so I think if we go back that far, that that reasonable liberal <coughs> wouldn't need to talk to us very long to realize that they're a Republican now. Mm-hmm. Oh, so true. So I guess just somebody that is leveling these isms, you are an ism, you know, yeah. you're an ist. Yeah. 
but they're not walking out of the room. How like what give like a very the, so if the the way that I would know whether it was worth engaging them is how they responded to my um, request for them to explain. Like, tell me how I'm an ist. Tell me how I'm a, a forward. What are you res- What are you responding to? What does that look like to you? And if they're willing to actually unpack it and say, well, it's this and it's this and it's this and this is the d- dynamic and how it works, then I can have a conversation with that person um, and kind of dig into it. But if they're ju- if they're just insistent that you're a terrible person because you need to be in order for me to feel righteous, mm-hmm. then there's nowhere to take the conversation. Very good point. Yeah, it's it. If I'm talking to to anybody and they give me a statement or they give me a belief, and I have an interest based on the body language and the totality of whatever is happening at the time, I'll just ask them the following question: Tell me why you believe that. Yeah, and that's it. Just whatever it is, gun control. I'm I'm a racist. Uh, pro pro abortion. Higher taxes. Whatever. Whatever the topic. Why do you believe that? That what you're pushing is going to be positive and uh, a good outcome. And and most of the time, they either give me a superficial answer, or they can't give me an answer because their belief is founded on emotion, and you can't articulate emotion if you believe in greater gun control because. You just have this emotional attachment that more control will equal less crime. Well, that that isn't. You can't articulate that. If you can't, if you believe that I'm for rich people because I'm a Republican, that is an emotional uh, conclusion, and it's not one you're going to be able to articulate. So anyway, that that's how I would do it. Uh, regardless, that is how I do it. Mm-hmm. Is just ask them why do you believe what you believe. Uh, final question, and this might get deep um, or intense, I suppose. Is there one of these topics that we've gone on that you feel you cannot give an inch on? Not just one, many of them. Yeah. No, I know that. But if you had, like, if you had to choose one, <clears throat> for the, for me, the the hill to die on, yes, the not an inch, mm-hmm. is the gender ideology. Okay. And very specifically, um, the the fundamental <coughs> doctrine that a man can somehow be or become a woman, and that a woman can somehow be or become a man, um, and of course, especially that applied to boys and girls. Uh, I do not give an inch on that. I never will give an inch on that to the degree that I refuse to use the pronouns. Um, I'm, I'm not going to play games. I'm not going to grant you any legitimacy of that claim whatsoever because it's so... For a couple of reasons. One, it's just gaslighting. It is so obviously incorrect. Um, and I'm not going to lie because you demand it. All right? That's number one. But I think more importantly than just um, standing, standing your ground in terms of your own sovereignty and your allegiance to truth... Truth is what's at stake. Facts are what's at stake. If we surrender this premise on something so elemental, so foundational, so obvious as to this is this is like, you know, you got you got five lights here um, and you're demanding that I tell you there's six. 
if I grant you that, then I have now granted you authority over me. Mm-hmm. I no longer get to defer to my perception of reality. I have to defer to your prescription of reality. And once I've done that, you own me. That's what's at stake in that issue. And I love that example. I think you even put that up, the, the lights yeah. thing on Facebook. <laughs> so those who have seen the Star Trek episode where it's all about trying to break the will of another yep. by forcing that person to make a statement that is not true. And so the, in that episode where Captain Picard was held captive by Cardassians, I think, yeah. and was trying to drug him and beat him and, and have him admit that there were five lights, I think, when there were only four or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly what's happening in our society is they're trying to force us to admit something that is not the truth. But to answer your question, I would say anything I'm willing to die on on the hill when it comes to the children. So that, now that's going to impact a lot of these different yeah. bills, whether it be the pro-life, whether it be yeah. the transgender, whether it be the the academics that they're, they're pushing, whether it be all these things. They're using our children as shields. They're trying to, t- there's truth coming at us. These Democrats are going to grab children and hide behind them and put them forward to block uh, the reality of, of all these different topics. And our children are suffering. They're playing mind games. They're playing physical games with our children. Uh, and it's just, it's so damaging of what's happening. So that's the hill that I, I'm willing to die on. Yeah, that was, that was my guess, is that I think any reasonable person would say today that where all of this stuff has gone and uh, the children that are being targeted for, that's obviously, that could be a whole different episode. But uh, thank you both. Uh, this was Amaz- amazingly enlightening. Uh, thank you so much for almost two hours of your time. Um, give us one last thing that you would like to close it out with, Walter. Uh, <clears throat> just that we were all born for such a time as this. Um, don't despair for future generations for your children because they also were born for the time they're going to live through. Uh, and there are a lot of people currently living today and certainly living throughout history who have had it much worse. Um, so avoid despair at all costs we've spent a lot of time being very harsh and honest about the reality of what we're facing but we're also joyful and committed and um, want to continue to approach this faithfully and the best the best support we can have in doing that is if you join us by also having a, a prayerful hopeful spirit 100%. Every single one of us, whether it be the two of us, whether it be you, whether it be anybody listening here, each of us has a very specific role that the Lord has given to us to be faithful in, as each of us have a different role in this army as we're all marching forward to pass along something to the next generation, to continue to stand for truth, to fight for truth, to fight for reality. And so the message is, as, as uh, Rep Hudson just said, do not despair. There's a lot of negative stuff out there. There's a lot of reason to be uh, depressed and, and, and so depressed so as to be paralyzed. Don't allow that to happen. Because all throughout history, there has always been an attack on the truth. 
by those in power and who abuse power to control other people. And we need to band together. We need to recognize the positions that each of us have been put in, the, the role that each of us has, and to act faithfully because as each of us has a different part and different role to play, when we all band together, we can advance forward and push back against those forces uh, of evil and control and seeking to deny opportunity for, for us now and for the next generation. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you both so much again. Uh, that is it for us. Dan B. here, your host, Eric Lucero, Walter Hudson. We're all signing off. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>